My friends, imagine with me uh, in your mind two men standing face to face in the midst of a valley facing off against one another. Behind each of these men is a great army that are opposed to one another. And one of those men that are facing that other man, one of those men is named Goliath. He stands some eight to nine feet tall. He has a helmet of bronze, a body armor, a body also colored in bronze metal. He's got a javelin slung around his back, a large spear in his hand. And every day he's going out day after day, taunting God and taunting God's people, daring them to come out and fight him. And there to accept the challenge was a young shepherd boy, an unexpected hero of sorts by the name of David. He, this small boy, is armed with nothing other than a sling and five smooth stones. Had Vegas existed, the odds of this fight would be a million to one in favor of Goliath. But David did not trust in odds. He trusted in the Lord his God that had delivered him from bear and lion. And now, out of jealousy for the glory of the Lord, David stood in the face of the giant indignant. Goliath laughs at him, thinking him nothing more than a stick for a dog. But David says in response with his eyes like fire, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And all this assembly will then know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand on this day. Goliath moves toward David, David towards Goliath. Most of you know the rest of the story. David pulls out a stone, slings it, hits the Philistine on the forehead, and he falls on his face dead. Friends, the battle is the Lord's, and he saves not with sword and with spear. The God of the Bible, you should know, is not insecure. He does not need to posture strength like the world does. As opposed to what some of his followers may have led you to believe, friends, he doesn't need intimidation or validation from anyone or anything in order to maintain his sovereign rule. He rules the universe not with show of force or of fame. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is very glad to use the weak in order to shame the strong. And all the more, he is glad to do that, especially when everything seems lost, when all of his purposes seem to be out the window. And friends, we see all of these things this morning as we continue investigating the book of Kings. The book of Kings is, as we have been saying, is the true story of how one king rules over all kings. That's what we've been reading about in the book of Kings. And this morning, we arrive at the ministry of one of the greatest prophets to ever walk the earth, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead. He, Elijah, represents how weakness is the way of God. How in the most unexpected times, God uses the most unexpected people to accomplish his most unexpected promises. We'll see that this morning. Three points this morning. They'll kind of hover up kind of more thematically at the beginning, and I'll move a little bit more deeper into the narrative as we go. First and most important point that you need to take away this morning is that the Lord is king. The Lord is king. We see that in this passage. 
And again, remember, we've been saying throughout the book of Kings that uh, the book of Kings means to trace the promise, God's promise to David to have a son of David that would sit on the throne and rule forever. Kings is tracing that promise to see who it was going to be. And so far as we've gotten into here to chapter 17, we found no answer to that promise just yet. All the kings so far have been tremendous disappointments as they have all eventually run after other gods. He except Asa, that is, but even Asa, he failed to take down the high places. And so the author wants us to keep looking forward to the answer to the Lord's promise to David. But we look forward with confidence to that promise because as we read about all these kings, we are told by the author, it is not they that are the real kings, but instead it is God who is the real king. And we learn today that God is not only the real king in uh, Israel and in Judah, but we learn today that he is the king of the whole world. That becomes even more apparent in the story today. In fact, I would argue this is the chief desire that the author would have us to conclude. He wants us to see that no matter who is in power, they are not ultimately in control. We want you to see that. God is. And we see that through the ministry of Elijah. Take a look at that first verse. Five observations that lead us to the conclusion that the Lord is king. Look at that first verse. Consider first that the Lord's man, Elijah, that we'll come back to in a moment, he goes to King Ahab and simply informs him that neither dew nor rain will come for years. And so it was. He just strolls up into the king's office and says, hey, bro, ain't going to rain. And so it was. That's teaching us that the Lord is the sovereign king. We are reminded, aren't we, that the Lord said in creation, let there be, and so there was. And in the same way, he says to a man in control of Israel, let there be no dew nor rain, and so there was. And there was absolutely, positively nothing that Ahab could do about it. It just was. The Lord is king. He had to submit to that. Consider secondly there, and look at verse 6, how the Lord could direct not only Elijah to the brook of Cherith, but also that he could direct ravens. God directs ravens to bring him bread and meat twice a day. The Lord is king. The Lord is king. Consider thirdly, look down there in verse 16. Consider thirdly how the Lord could keep the flour and the oil coming for days, just as Jesus did when he kept feeding the four and 5,000. The Lord is king. He keeps supplying food. Look at verses 17 down to 24. Consider the fact that the Lord could bring about good and blessing outside the land of promise when he worked through this Gentile woman of Sidon. Consider lastly, the power of God by his ruling over life and death. We see this in verse 23. We see that in his raising the woman's son from the dead, as he would later rise his only son from the dead, we see in that passage that the Lord is king. He rules over death. Friends, the author wants us to see all of this in contrast to Baal. Who purports to be king of the land, and yet he's not. That's what the author's doing. Contrasting these two. We will see this even more next week. You will want to hear this next week. One of my favorite passages in all the Bible. It is hysterical and awesome. We'll see this. Even more, the author, not so subtly, is asking in the pages of this story, where are you, O powerful Baal? Can you stop the heavens? Can you provide food incessantly? Can you direct ravens? Can you direct peoples? 
Can you raise the dead? No. You're silent. You sit there like Abraham Lincoln on in his memorial. He can't utter a word as God works. And so while Baalism has taken over God's place, Baal is not in control. Nor is any other so-called God in this world today. They may have the throne of earthly power in some sense, but this false God does not hold any heavenly power over earth. And so while temples and images and worship may abound in Israel at this time, this God of wood and stone has the power of a flea in comparison to the God who makes and sustains the world by the word of his power. The Lord is king. We're seeing that here. Not Baal, not Ahab, not Israel itself, not anyone. And friends, this is the point that the author wants us to be compelled by today. That no matter who occupies the thrones of the earth, no one, no matter how much material or uh, militaristic power they have uh, from this earth, doesn't matter. The Lord is the one that rules from heaven. Only the Lord is king. All else is sinking sand, ultimately. He alone has the power to judge, to supply, and to defeat all earthly powers, including sin and death. And again, we see that prominently in this passage. We're reminded, aren't we, that this past Tuesday, the throngs waited with bated breath to see if their candidate would win and bring about their agenda. And maybe that was some of you. And of course, we know that government is ordained by God and is an an institution established to promote justice for all. Scripture commands us, as we've done this morning, to pray for our leaders and even submit to them insofar as they are teaching us that which is good, right, and true. But friends, we should never hope in governmental leaders as our ultimate end, as we see in this passage. No matter how much power they might have, they are under the authority of God himself. Ahab was a king of Israel. He brazenly built a temple for a false god. You see that at the end of chapter 16. And without even blushing, he marries a woman in Jezebel that is worshiping a false god. Scripture agrees that he has so much power that he normalizes false worship. He was powerful. Ahab was powerful, but he was limited in the scope of what he was able to do. We know Ahab will soon die. His agenda of Baalism clearly doesn't last since nobody practices said religion today. In the end, Ahab's power was limited, tiny in comparison to God's rule. Though if we were living then, we would have thought he would have been very powerful. It reminds us that we see this all the time, don't we, in history. Had you been living in the 1960s, you would have thought that Russia was so powerful that its rule would never be compromised. And yet they are a fractured nation, fractured nation with limited power today. Had you been living in the time of Genghis Khan or Pol Pot or in Germany in the 1930s, you would have thought those regimes would never come to an end. And yet they all have come to an end. Their power, their influence, while real and had real effects, Tragic, some of them, is little more than a notation in a history book today. And so it is with all earth's kings, including those of America. No matter the party or the office, in comparison to the annals of eternity, the rules of kings and queens, while important, are limited in their abilities. No matter their size, no matter the size of their economy or their army, no matter how many followers they might have on social media, those other kinds of kings, right? None of them can stop the rain. None of them can bring endless supplies of food. None of them can raise the dead. But the Lord can. Because the Lord is king. All thrones, especially those that denounce his authority, are relegated to God's purposes. 
Reminded of the story of the 18th century atheist French philosopher Voltaire, who famously predicted that within a hundred years of his death, there would not be a single Bible on the earth except for those that were looked upon for historical purposes. And not only was he wrong, Voltaire, but also we know that within a few decades of his death, his own house turned into a Bible distribution center. That's a true story. Reminded, I heard this week of the story of Thomas Jefferson, that every young man at the time of Thomas Jefferson's life, he said that by their old age, they would all be Unitarians. How wrong was Thomas Jefferson? Jesus said, friends, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Matthew 10. Elijah will have some trouble with some of this a little later, but for now, he's an example in the vein of Moses who stood before the great powers of the earth and spoke the truth because they knew and were convicted and compelled by who was really in charge. So do you, do you know who's in charge? Do you know who really is king? And are you putting your hope in him? I pray that you would, pray that we would. First King shows us this. But secondly, we see, friends, that the, the Lord rules by the word. He is king, and he rules by the word through the mouth of his prophets. The Lord rules by the word through the mouth of his prophets. From the beginning of this book, we've been reading right about the different kings, from David to Solomon's meteoric rise and then fall, to Rehoboam's fantastic fall, to Jeroboam's rise and fall. We've read about Abijah and Asa and Nadab and Basha and Zimri and Omri. And now we read about King Ahab here in Israel. All of these kings making great boasts, some greater than others. And all of them we've seen have been forced to submit to the words of the prophets. Every one of them. From Ahijah to that manless, strange story about the man of God to Jehu. And now here prominently in Elijah, the prophets declare God's will to the kings. And as the author says, everything happens according to the word of the Lord. Look there in verse one. Just like the other prophets, we know nothing about this guy, Elijah. We'll come back to that. But what we do know is most important. He speaks the word of God and things come to pass, which is how you know what a true prophet is. Deuteronomy teaches that. He says there in verse one, there shall be uh, neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And his word came to pass. Why? Because it was the Lord's word. And immediately in the next verse, verse two, you see there, we see the word of the Lord coming to him and then moving him beyond the Jordan. Look at verse five. So Elijah does, what does it say? According to the word of the Lord. Look at verse eight. Then the word of the Lord, word of the Lord came to Elijah and he heads up to Sidon. Look at verse 16. The jar or jug of oil isn't spent according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. Verse 24. After the resurrection of her son, the author tells us the woman said, now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. See the themes, those repetitive phrases. The Lord is king, friends, and he rules through the mouth of his prophets. He doesn't need kings. He doesn't need earthly thrones. He doesn't need earthly palaces to accomplish his will. 
He can use the mouths of simple people to shake the strong because he rules by his word. Now, to be sure, we also know, right, that that Baal had his words, right, doesn't he? And his prophets. That's why you want to see those guys next week, I promise you. If you want to go ahead and read ahead at this afternoon, you'll want to do that. Baal had his words, had his prophets. The house of Omri, uh, as carried along by Ahab, his son, they did more evil than all before them. But again, I ask, where are their followers today? Where are they? It is the word of the Lord alone that can stop the rain and bring the bread and raise the dead. Because it is by the word of the Lord that all things are made. And it is by the word of the Lord that all things are brought to life. And by the way, that's the other theme of this chapter. This word bringing life as opposed to the false kings or false worship brings their words bring death. There's this comparison between Baal and the Lord, Lord showing he's king. Second theme, he, God, is ruling by his word. His word brings life. Baal's words bring death. You'll notice this. Wherever the words of the evil kings go, death eventually follows. Wherever the words of the prophets go, life eventually follows. Even in the judgment of Ahab that brings a famine, the word of the Lord puts Elijah in places where he continues to be sustained by life. Right from the brook of Cherith where the water is coming to him and the ravens bringing him food to the jug of flour and the jar of oil in Seraphath. Right, that word of the Lord coming and just this life keeps coming as the word comes to the life of the widow's sons. Right, life comes by the word. God is screaming from the pages of these wicked kings. Why would you follow kings that utter words of death when God who is true and the lasting king offer you words of life? Why would you go after the words of those kings? Go after the words of God. So as Christians, friends, we are not allegiant to the word of God simply because we're told to be. I hope you know that. We don't follow the word of God just because God tells us to follow it. We understand the word to be life and liberty. Jesus says as much in John 8, 31 and 32. If you abide in my word... You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And what will it do? It will set you free. So the word brings life. We follow it, yes, because the Lord tells us. We we follow it because the Lord is king and so we need to follow it. But we also are convicted as Christians that this word brings life. So even though it might call me to do something hard, I'm going to trust it like David did. Right To go out and face a Goliath. Why? Because it brings life. And he'd seen that before because it delivered him from barren lion. So I want you to think about this very moment when you have that Thanksgiving meal in a couple weeks. You say, why? Well, friend, it was, when you think about all of that beautiful spread in front of you on Thanksgiving meal, it was the cook's willingness to submit to the words of the recipe that led to the deliciousness of the meal. Think about that, right? You got sweet potatoes, warm bread rolls, that honey-baked ham cooked for hours. If you've never cooked a ham before, it cooks hours, by the way. Just some people find that out every Thanksgiving. Cranberry sauce, that perfectly baked pumpkin pie or pecan pie. All of it is exquisite because the cook went to great detail to submit to the recipe. The words of the recipe. Was it easy? I've never done it before, but my suspicion is no. (laughs) 
I'm sure it's hard work putting that meal. I've watched my mom and my wife do this year after year. It's hard work. Would it have been easier to not go to all of that trouble? Of course not. It would be much easier just to do something else or to just not submit to the words of the recipe and just throw a bunch of stuff in a basket and throw it together and put it on there. But it wouldn't be edible. It wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be life-giving. But because they did, because they submitted carefully to the words of that recipe, then your taste buds are set free from the slavery of dry and tasteless foods. Beautiful, isn't it? That's why I said, when you sit down at that meal in a couple weeks, remember this moment. Submit to the word of the Lord and find life. Everyone submits to a word, but not every word frees you and gives you life like the word of God does. His word is the perfect recipe to produce a life that is as tasty as a delectable Thanksgiving meal. But like that meal, friend, it requires patience requires attention to detail, requires a lot of help from those that have gone before us, requires a lot of help from those that are with us now. And so if you give yourself to it, then the evidence is seen right there in verse 23. You give yourself to the word, following it carefully, studying it, you find life from the dead. The Lord is king of life. He rules by his word. Friends, if you reject the word of God and you choose to live with yourself as king, following your own words or following your own tribes, as it were, following their words, then you will go the way of Ahab and find yourself in judgmental famine. That's where you'll wind up. I tell you that because I love you. Nobody else is going to tell you that oftentimes. Friends, our city is not in a better place for having rejected the Bible's straightforward teaching on sexual morality, self-restraint, repentance, creation, or wisdom. The more we lean into the words of men and reject all what God says about those things or picking and choosing the words of God we want to follow, the more that we then lead our children, our families, our churches, our communities into places of chaos. And that's exactly what Kings is teaching. That's the whole point. That there's going to be a king that is not going to be found in ancient Israel, that he's going to have to come later. And secondly, you don't follow the words, things go bad. You need a better king and follow that king. And the more that you follow the words of man and follow other gods, the more insane the society around you becomes. And meanwhile, the prophets continue to be the mouth of God in the earth, no matter what may be going on around them, offering the way to life and peace with God and one another, bringing life in small little tiny communities like this one. And yet time and again, sadly, humanity keeps choosing man's words over God's words. And then they wonder why they are where they are. This is why. Because they've rejected God's life-giving word. They've not gone the way of the recipe. They're eating foods that are just not healthy or good. Jesus, the true and lasting prophet, friend, speaks a better word. He says that he's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. Trust and treasure him and his words as life and eternal peace. Because after all, he is the king of the kingdom and he rules by his word. But some of you might say, well, Nathan, it doesn't seem like the Lord is king right now in 2022. Doesn't seem like his word is giving life today. 
Maybe in your life, maybe in the world in general, maybe you're saying that. Well, the first thing I would say to you is, I'm pretty sure that most people living in Israel at this time would have said the exact same thing. But take a look. We learn something more in answering to that question. Third point here, he does, we said the Lord is king, he rules by his word, and he does his best work in the most unexpected times with the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways. He does his best work in the most unexpected times with the most unexpected people in the most unexpected ways. Now, I've been a little bit, for those some of those church planning weekender friends, I've been a little bit uncharacteristic of my preaching. Some of the, our members are going, that's not like Nathan to sort of jump out of the narrative and make observations. Uh, let's get down in the narrative a little bit more, shall we? Looking back in chapter 16, verse 32, I had Kirby read that because I think it sets up the scene really well. Last week, you remember when I was reading Jericho, I told you the point of that passage was to build your confidence in the word. And I think that's true. But now after having studied even more in what comes in chapter 17, now Jericho makes a lot more sense as to why just randomly that story is thrown in here. Take a look. Looking back at chapter 16, verse 32, we see the king of God's people, Israel. We see that he's constructed a temple for Baal in the land. Think about that. God's king is now not only just not not sort of having divided worship, now he's constructing an entire temple. Remember, we're back in 1 Kings 6 when we, we read through the building of God's temple. Now we got a king of Israel building a temple to Baal in the land. That's a big deal. He's also, we see, married a Gentile woman named Jezebel who is a follower of Baal. I love that language. Look back there. And verse 31 of chapter 16, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, and the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Baal, temple built, just brazenly marrying some gal that could care less about the one true God, worships another God, and apparently Ahab doesn't, his conscience is not bound at all by this. And then we see that little story there in verse 34. Why is that thrown in there? While there is judgment for his doing this, we see, nevertheless, the city of Jericho is rebuilt. You remember that Jericho was destroyed. That was the first city with all of its strong walls. They walk in, walls of Jericho came tumbling down. Y'all know that song, right? Those Jerichos came tumbling down. Well, now they're built back up. Jericho's rebuilt. Going back to the description, way back in chapter 14, verse 24, one might say it's as if the Lord didn't even do anything in bringing his people into the land with his presence and his word. These guys, it says in chapter 14, verse 24, it says that these guys, these Israelites, they are no different than the wicked peoples that lived in the land before the Israelites came in. They're no different. They're just like those people that needed to be judged. Just think about this, guys. This is amazing. Truckloads upon truckloads of God's grace and mercy went in. And within just a few generations, there is but a shred of evidence that they are any different than those that were there before them. And some of you might be asking, maybe you're not a Christian and you're going, you know, why are you Christians? So, you know, got to deal with this. You got to worship God. What's so bad with Baal? Well, let me give you a little bit of an introduction to Baalism. By flipping over to 2 Kings 17, it'll be on the screen behind me. 2 Kings 17, 16 to 17, here's a little description of Baalism. 
referencing the Israelites, it says, they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and they made themselves metal images of two calves. You remember we thought about that with Jeroboam. Made for themselves metal images of two calves, and they made an Asherah. That's a pole. It'll be an image they would worship. And made an Asherah and worshipped all the host of heaven. They worshipped the stars and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. And used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord. You reject God's word, you eventually find yourself following words that lead to death. Even the death of killing their own sons and daughters. Some parallels today, isn't there? This is the setting of Elijah. This is the setting of Elijah's words to Ahab. Worst environment imaginable. Worst environment imaginable. Darkness pervading. Things terrible. You think they're bad today? They're way worse back then. Had we been following the Lord at this time, we would have wondered where God was. While we are told to expect such things, right, do not be surprised when the fire trial comes upon you. While we are told to expect such things, we might say, if we were living back then, these are very unexpected times. I thought it was supposed to be going good. In fact, we look, uh, look up a little bit further up in chapter 19, verse 18 of 1 Kings. It seems as though there's around 7,000 followers of the Lord living at this time. Think about that. How many people came into the land trusting the Lord, at least saying they trusted the Lord? Millions. 7,000 left. Millions of God's people that had had been given millions of truckloads of God's grace and mercy with his presence, with his word, with his leaders. And now there's only a handful of true worshipers left while the throngs follow a dead God that calls them to kill their sons and daughters. That's where we're at. And who is the Lord working amidst at this time? Who's he working with? Things terrible, worse they've ever been. Who's he going to look for to kind of bring some light, to bring some healing, to bring some kind of salvation, to bring his word? Who's he working with? Is he working with somebody from the halls of Congress, from the halls of a presidential palace? Is he working with somebody from the elites, the cultural elites, the cultural movers and shakers? No. It's Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe, the Gilead. Who's that? Exactly. Right? <laughs> I love this. I just love, I was praying this morning. Lord, I just love that you're like this. I'm an idiot. Right? And like the Lord will use my idiotness to, for his glory, to show his strength. It's not Elijah, the son of Ahab. No ties, it seems, to the throne of David. He's not a priest in the line of Levi. He's got no great wealth, it seems. We have no mention of his family. He's just a man that trusted the Lord and his word. Not exactly what we might have expected in such a time of need. Had it been someone else riding, we would have expected someone of greater prominence with a great name and great power, maybe like Goliath. We would have sort of expected a guy like that. But no, that is not the way the Lord shows his might, his sovereign rule. He shows his strength in weakness. He uses unexpected people in unexpected times to bring about his greatest purposes. And not only that, guys, he acts in unexpected ways. Did you notice where the Lord sent Elijah? Remember, he's outside the land getting food and water from ravens, right, in the brook. 
It dries up. God sends him somewhere else. Where would we expect him to go? Back into the land, right? Nope. Verse 3, look at it. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself at the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Same thing. Look at verse 5, east of the Jordan. Two times in a few verses, east of the Jordan, east of the Jordan. Why is the author doing this? Why does he want to emphasize east of the Jordan? Well, remember, guys, the first thing they did after Moses died what was what? They crossed the what? Jordan River to go into the land of promise from west to east, west going into the land, crossing the Jordan, going into the land. And remember, secondly, when Israel came into the land, again, they descended upon Jericho and destroyed the city. And now we see everything's in reverse. The author wants us to see that now Elijah has been sent outside the land, outside the land of promise, outside the land of covenantal blessing. In other words, friends, when we think about the fact that Ahab has built a temple in the land to Baal, and we see secondly, that Jericho has been rebuilt. And thirdly, we see the word of God as represented in the person of the prophet Elijah has been sent out the land. It's as though the author wants us to see that we're right back in the book of Deuteronomy. As though nothing happened. Jericho is still there. The word of God is outside the land. Baal worship is still inside the land waiting for judgment. And why is the Lord doing this? Like why is this happening this way? Why is the story in Kings setting up like this? Here's a critical thing. It appears as though the Lord and the author are wanting to rehearse for us the ministry of Moses. You say, how in the world do you get that, Nathan? Well, again, I've already given you a lot of work, right? Outside the land, temple of Baal inside the land, Jericho's rebuilt. But look at the similarities between Moses and Elijah. Just as Moses went before Pharaoh and announced his impending judgment, so we see here in verse 1, Elijah has done the exact same thing. He's gone to a king Ahab and announced judgment. Just as Moses and the Israelites were in the desert, being miraculously fed by the manna day after day, so we see the Lord does the exact same thing for Elijah here at the brook of Cherith. Next week, we will see, just as the Lord visited with Moses on Mount Sinai, so we're going to see Elijah is visited and dealt with by the Lord at Mount Carmel. And both of these guys, Moses and Elijah, both of them will uniquely see the backside of the glory of God from the cleft of a rock. And of course, then it is of no surprise that when we get to the Mount of Transfiguration, When Jesus' glory is revealed, that who's there? Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets, the Bible. So what seems to be happening here is the author wants us to see that as Moses ushered in this magic epoch in the story of Israel, so will Elijah do the same for Israel. Elijah, in that sense, we might say is a kind of second Moses. As Moses came in the darkest of days of Israel, slavery, right, in Egypt, to bring about the light of God's redemption, so Elijah will come in the darkest day of Israel. Only instead of bringing the light of God's redemption in the old covenant, Elijah is meant to be seen as a light of God's true and forever redemption in Christ. 
He's the forerunner to get us ready for that new covenant. As Moses was the forerunner to the old covenant, Elijah will be the forerunner to the new covenant. And friend, that becomes very clear when we look hundreds of years beyond these events in 1 Kings 17, hundreds of years after the death of Elijah. We read from the prophet Malachi in Malachi 4.4. This is how we know that Elijah is to be seen as the forerunner to the new covenant. Malachi 4.4, hundreds of years after Elijah has been dead. Behold, the prophet says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Remember how many times did people say, are you Elijah to Jesus? They were looking for him. They were taught to be looking for him because they knew that Elijah was the forerunner to this new covenant. And that, of course, then leads us where? The ministry of John the baptizer. And what did Jesus say of him? Remember, the disciples asked him, we're supposed to be looking for Elijah, Jesus. And Jesus said, he is Elijah. John the baptizer is the the second Elijah. He is the fulfillment of that promise. John the baptizer was preaching a baptism of repentance, right? To prepare the way for the Lord. John fulfills that. Jesus calls him the greatest prophet. Therefore, guys, let's now rewind back to the clock, to back here, to 1 Kings 17. Elijah then is turning the page of God's dealings with Israel. God had been working through Moses, who gave them the law, right? Then he That then led them to where the Lord would minister to Israel through the priests, Right through Moses, then through the priest at the temple, which then led, as we've seen in in Kings, to his dealings with the kings. But just as the just as Moses failed and didn't get to go in the land, the priests of old uh, did they failed. Right then we see the kings; they have now been seen to have failed, and now the Lord turns to the ministry of the prophets to bring the word of the Lord, and that's the major epic that we'll see from here on out in the Old Testament. All these books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, right? The minor prophets, Zechariah, all these guys. The Lord now turns to the ministry of the prophets to bring the word. And that word that these prophets speak, it's twofold. He brings a word of confrontation to false worshipers and a word of comfort to the true followers. Think about the book of Isaiah. First half, judgment, judgment, judgment. Chapter 40, comfort my people. That's what prophets are doing. And so with the couple quick exceptions we'll see in Hezekiah and Josiah next April or so, we get there, the prophets will now be a major voice to bring us the word to prepare us for the son of David that will then sit on the throne forever. And to our great amazement, when he finally comes, that true and lasting son of David that fulfills the promise to King David, to our great amazement, this king that comes is both prophet priest, and king. Come on, man, this is so good. This is God, right? This is amazing. Read and meditate in the word. You see all of these things coming together. I've said before that, man, if if the Bible isn't true, then I want to worship the guy that wrote it because this thing is amazing. It's profound. It's transcendent. It's revealing. And this Jesus that comes, that is the son of David, the answer to the promise of David, that his prophet, priest, and king, he, Jesus, is an unexpected vessel, isn't he? From an unexpected place that God has moved to bring the light of his redemption in unexpected times. This is how the Lord works. He moves in unexpected ways in unexpected times, and he uses unexpected people. Elijah the Tishbite, 
not Elijah the king or the priest. But that's not all. Slide down to verse 8. Look in 1 Kings 17. Slide down to verse 8. See how he works in unexpected places and people. Remember, after the brook at Cherith dried up, the word of the Lord comes to Elijah. And as we've rehearsed, the, the word will send him towards life. But where's that life? Again, back in the promised land? No. God doesn't send him to the promised land. He sends him where? And Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon. Some of you should be going, wait a minute, that sounds familiar. It should. Look back in chapter 16, verse 31. This is where the Lord is sending Elijah. Ahab marries Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. You can hear the word Baalism in there. Marries Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Of all places, the Lord sends Elijah after all of his food and water have dried up. Where? To the capital of Baal worship. <laughs> to the home of Ahab's pagan wife. Talk about unexpected places, right? This would be like telling some of our missionary friends serving in the Middle East, trying to reach Muslims. Hey, listen, go to Mecca for some respite to get some food. What? Shouldn't I go to Jerusalem to do that or something? But that's not all. Elijah meets a Gentile woman, but unexpected people. Elijah meets a Gentile woman with a child who is out making her last meal before they die. And it is there that the Lord provides flour and oil for days without end. Just again, as Jesus kept grabbing in food, right? On that meal, fish and bread just keeps coming out. The woman woke up every day. She kept finding food amidst a famine for days, caring for herself and her daughter and her son. And it is this non-Jewish woman whose child dies and Elijah prays and rescues him from the grave. This is so spectacular that God is working among that woman. This is such an unexpected, uh, unexpected person and place and time that Jesus himself picks up on this story and uses it as a way to illustrate how he is being rejected in his hometown of Nazareth. Jesus uses this story, this particular woman, and all of these dark times as a way to illustrate his own ministry. Look at Luke chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. Here it is. It says, but in truth, this is Jesus. He's being rejected in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three and six, three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them. Elijah, or Jesus is going, you'd expect God to do some amazing thing through one of those Jewish women. But no, but only Jesus says to Zarephath and the land of Sidon. To a woman who was a widow. Unexpected people. Unexpected places. Unexpected ways. So to sum up. Israel is absolutely in the moral and spiritual gutter. Only a handful of Israelites are left trusting the Lord. A wicked pagan king is leading Israel into even more sin. Judgment has fallen upon the land. And the guy the Lord raises up to begin the new and final epic before the coming of the true and lasting son of David who would rule in the fear of the Lord is none other than Elisha the Tishbite from Possum Trot, Kentucky. I mean, that's it. Whose ministry this guy mirrors Moses's. And yet he is used as a light to the nations. Can I convince you any more that the Lord is king? That he rules by his word, that he operates in the most unexpected ways, in the most unexpected times, using the most unexpected people. And so, beloved, therefore, it should not surprise us in any least, in the least, that when Christ finally appears, he comes when? After 400 years of silence, hundreds of years gone by, God has not spoken a word. 
And when he comes, idolatry once again reigning in the land. And he is born of another gal from Possum Trot, Kentucky. A teenage girl known to nobody with no otherwise reputation. And he would be raised, Jesus, in Possum Trot, Kentucky, in Nazareth. Whereas Nathaniel would say, does anything good come from that tiny town? It was said to be about 500 people. Jesus was not some, from some amazing big city. He ain't coming from New York City. He's coming from Possum Trot, as it were. Unlike all the other prophets and priests and kings, Jesus was faithful. He lived and ruled in the fear of the Lord. He did not go above the word or below the word. He did the word completely, fulfilled it. And because he did, he was able to defeat the enemy of our sin on the cross. Because of his faithfulness, he could make an atoning sacrifice that would atone for the sins of all of us that believe upon him. And he would do it in the most unexpected way. He would win. He would defeat sin and death by losing. He defeated all of our false worship. He defeated all of the ways that we followed other gods. Defeated all of the ways that we've listened to other words that led us to death. And he did it by going, Jesus did. He did it by going outside the city, just like Elijah went outside the land. He took, Jesus did on the cross. He took that famine that Elijah spoke on the land. Jesus took that famine. He took that judgment on himself for our sin. Christ, we learn, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, by becoming a famine for us, by being judged on our behalf for those of us that believe. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham and David might come to the woman in Zarephath, might come to you and you and you. Those of us not part of any great family line. The second Elijah, John the Baptist prepared the way for the second Adam. Jesus Christ, who has come to make all things new here in the land of the earth. And we see that that atonement was received in that most unexpected way on the cross, winning by losing. We see that he won because three days later, he got up from the dead, just as that son did. To take his throne, Jesus, in the heavenly places where he rules, he is seated. Our king is seated. To teach us to love and to trust him, to follow his good and gracious command that you and I might have life back in the land of the new Jerusalem to enjoy him forever. Know him and see him. And so I finish here. Beloved, I know that life is hard. I know that the world in so many ways is hard. Some of you have lost parents. We've had a couple people in our church in the past few months that have lost parents very unexpectedly. We've had dozens of you lose children just as that woman at Zarephath did. Others of you don't know what tomorrow holds. Things seem to not be getting easier for us Christians. Ahab's regime, as it were, is pressing in all around us. But Elijah has come. So has redemption. God's ruling, and he rules through his word, as spoken by his people, his prophets. On the worst of days, beloved, on the worst of days, on the worst of days, when all else seems lost, Jesus will appear in that eastern sky. 
and he will make all things right once and for always. That day is coming. And therefore, beloved, don't forget this. Restoration family, don't forget this. As the light of a candle shines in the best days, and the, as the light of the candle shines even brighter in the darkest of rooms, as the warmth of the fire feels best on the coldest of days, the Lord does his best work of redemption in the darkest of days. He did it with Moses. He did it with David. He did it with Elijah. He did it with Christ. And he's doing it in your life and my life now. Sometimes it's hard to see, but that's why God gave us this book to help remind us of that. And so no matter what comes today or tomorrow, beloved, may we be found seeing and savoring Christ as Lord and King. None other. And beloved friend, if you are not trusting in Christ as Lord, I'm pleading with you to trust as with Christ as King, to trust all of your false worship to him, to deal with it. Jesus says that either you deal with your sin or he deals with it on the cross. Your sin is egregious to him. You've tried to be your own king or queen. Trust in him. Submit to him and find life in his word. The word of the Lord is in the mouth of Christ, our great prophet, priest, and king. And he is ruling today by his word. And so may we say, beloved, with David in the face of Goliath, you come to me with sword and with spear. You come to me with earthly uh, intimidations. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. The battle, whatever that battle is, it is the Lord's. May we trust him to keep walking in the truth of his good and gracious word. And soon enough, beloved, just like Elijah, we will get outside the land and we will come back into the land. And we will see him and savor him in peacefulness forever. May that day come soon. And may we hope in it as we wait. Lord Jesus, you are king. Forgive us for the ways in which we have sought to be our own kings and queens. Thank you for atonement. Thank you for sacrifice. Thank you that you used an unexpected throne on a cross to defeat our sin. Thank you for the resurrection and our resurrection that is coming. May we hope in it and trust in your word and follow you as king that we might know what life eternal is both now and forevermore. We love you, Jesus. We thank you that you first loved us. So now receive the worship of our mouths as we declare it to you and each other.